Welcome everyone to Sober, as stories of badgers in power and recovery. This is a podcast with Wisconsin Voices for Recovery. My name is Aaron Claiborne, and I am the Outreach Specialist for the Overdose Data to Action Program with Wisconsin Voices. Um, Wisconsin Voices for Recovery is a peer-run movement that helps unite people in recovery, their families, professionals, and allies. As a diverse coalition of recovery advocates, we serve a statewide network to link services and support to those in need. And joining me today is uh, my guest, our guest, Deslin Smith. Um, Deslin is a clinical director for Gateway to Change LLC located in Milwaukee, and she's the co-executive director for Uniting Garden, Garden Homes. We'd like to welcome Deslin to our podcast. Uh, I'd like to say happy Black History Month, Deslin. Yes. And we salute all those great African-American inventors, writers, uh, and all that. Um, yeah. So I would like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit more about yourself, you know, your background, including professional and your current roles and things like that. Okay, great. Yeah, well, um, along with what you said, I took a new role with Mental Health America in Wisconsin um, here in Milwaukee. Um, I'm from Milwaukee, born and raised. Um, I'll go my professional background. I'm a psychotherapist, um, clinical supervisor, and clinical substance abuse counselor, um, and I'm a certified trauma professional. So, um, and that's where I like focusing a lot around my background. Um, I got into this field based on a lot of a personal background, going back to my son at the age of 15, who was involved with uh, marijuana use and then was diagnosed. Well, we still didn't quite know what the diagnosis was, which made me very curious on, I didn't like the treatment I received when I was dealing with him. I didn't, you know, like uh, then the stigma that was related to substance abuse and mental health and how, you know, I was looked upon as a woman of color with my child and things of that nature. So that's got me into the field that I am. And I'm very, very passionate. The current roles, I, I do a lot of roles. I'm really involved in the community. That's where United Garden Homes comes in. It's a community-based organization in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we're targeting and focusing on um, behavioral health and substance abuse education, treatment, violence prevention education in that realm in our community and healing our community. Yeah, that is wonderful. That's a beautiful thing. There, there mm-hmm. are a lot of issues that need to be addressed and, uh, and resolved, uh, especially with the stigma. That is always a, a hard topic to um, get across to people who don't understand the, the, the battles and the struggles and the hurdles you have to jump over, um, you know, and, and mental health and, and substance use disorder. Um, it kind of, I, I'm under the impression that you, um, you know, with your, with your son, um, mm-hmm. that you didn't, you said you didn't like the way the treatment and especially being a, uh, African American, that there right. needs to be changed. That, that that was a message that you got and what you want to present, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah, definitely. That, yeah, definitely. I, I mm-hmm. totally agree. Um, so 
uh, BIPOC communities have a high a higher rate of overdose deaths um, or, or what have you than the, mm-hmm. than the non-BIPOC communities. Why do you think this is? Um, I think a lot of it goes back to stigma related to addiction and mental health, the lack of education on opiates and drug use in general. I believe there's a huge disparity in access to healthcare services and education on both. Outreach is limited and those in black and brown communities aren't encouraged to participate in activities related to this. Um, so I think that plays a huge part in it. Yeah, I, I agree. I've definitely seen some breakdown, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, various communities uh, with involvement in, in recovery initiatives. Yes. Um, yeah, that, that I agree with that. I, I've seen mm-hmm. it myself, um, even in the community I live in, um, mm-hmm. where there's, you know, a handful of minorities, um, but, you know, there's one percent of that handful that i've seen that are involved in the recovery movement to some capacity mm-hmm. so yeah it's a, definitely something that needs to change and improve uh, yeah. overall mm-hmm. thank you yep. um how much do uh, drugs and alcohol impact the communities you work in and, and why do you think that is uh, it has a devastating impact um it I believe it has an adverse effect on our employment industries, education, and training, more more so on our families, and has the high impact with crime, violence, our financial problems, housing, homelessness, and vagrants in our communities. Um, And I believe it just goes back to the lack of education, resource, and stigma. I I mean, I'm going to probably say that a lot um throughout and i and i do believe that's why it impacts um and the lack of resources that we have available or that they and other um the people that have the resources don't provide it to us even though they that they're there we just don't get them yeah yeah i i can see that you know i i've been in the, that community uh, where, where Gateway to Change is, you know, mm-hmm. I, with you, I've been inside of the facility, but uh, I, I've been in that community outside of that as well. Um, there, There's quite a bit of disparity there. And um, I, I can see the connection, you know, with the drugs, alcohol, and the stigma and how it affects that community and other communities. Um, yes. So yeah, it's kind of like taking a look at your environment and assessing the needs um, and, and why those needs aren't being met is a definite uh, thing to examine. Yes. Uh, especially in communities of color. I totally mm-hmm. agree. Um, that, that was beautiful. Um, can you speak a little, about, a little bit about the impact of co-occurring mental health conditions including trauma in these communities and the relationship to st- substance use. Now, before you answer, uh-huh. um, I- I'm really, really interested in hearing what you have to say <laughs> because I know my views and I'm not going to, you know, um, I'm not going to 
monopolize the conversation about this question. You're fine. Yeah, but I'm really interested in hearing what you have to say. Okay, so I'll grab because I feel um, the impact is great. It leads to serious impairment in our communities, limiting and interfering with our major life activities. And a lot, you're going to, I include myself because I'm a part of this community. And um, even though I have, may not have suffered directly with a substance abuse issue, but it impacts me greatly um, from my, like I said, my family and things of that nature. So I speak in first person because it, I'm involved. So um, many people who develop the substance use disorder are diagnosed with current, current, co-occurring mental health conditions and have experienced trauma. And many people who are diagnosed with mental health illnesses will develop a substance use disorder. But I don't separate the two because the substance use disorder is listed in the DSM-5. So that's the, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual for Mental Health Disorders and Substance Use um, disorder is listed in there. So for me, those two go hand in hand. I can't separate the two um, because there is a there's a difference between an illness and an issue. And I think we all suffer from issues. It's just how we um, are able to cope with them. So I, I believe this all goes back to the lack of education that is provided about mental health and medication that helps with mental health as well as the lack of education about addiction in general. Um, I feel it goes back to the stigma, a stigma um, related to mental health and addiction with interferes with proper treatment. Um, as it relates to trauma, sometimes we forget about vicarious trauma. The definition, the, the, the dictionary definition of trauma is a distressing or disturbing experience. But for the it's it boils down to how we respond or react we all respond and react differently to the exact same event so in reality trauma is how we respond or react to the event and um which then a lot of us in our communities self-medicate because we stigmatize it so much so i i i know the impact is great and it, it goes hand in hand with to me. Yeah, I, I really love that answer. Um, you know, reflecting, uh, you know, on, on the community, the environment I grew up in, like you said, it's the way you handle it um, mm -hmm. or the way you don't handle it. You right, know? Um, right. That connection is there, you know, if you self-medicate or if you don't. And then that stigma, you know, yeah, I'm afraid to tell someone right. that um, that something is going on. And then um, a lot of us are are just, you know, you're raised, you know, we don't know what um, real anxiety or depression is. It's just something is going on. You'll get over it. So it, it's just it's a lot of things that we weren't. Um, and I know I speak when I say we, I really speak for myself, but I see it so much with the clients I work with, people I talk to, you know, we don't, we're not um, um, taught to experience our mental health healthy because it, it, it will interfere with our job, even though they can't discriminate, they do. 
especially to us people of color. Um, and then we're afraid. So then that makes us afraid to go get the help we need. So then we hide in the closet and it just festers. And, um, I know that I recently experienced, um, the death is actually is coming up on a year of my husband to a drug overdose, which then I had to really step back and examine what fears I had and stigmas I had related to that and, and, um, wanting to reach out for help, you know, that stigma of being judged or, you know, ostracized or, you know, saying you're not capable or your lack of. So um, I had to re-examine that and really go head on and face it for myself. So it's real. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's also a sense of being looked at as weak. Yes. You know, um, yes. That, that less than, um, that, that less than, you know, stigmatizing right language, language means more than just less than you know right especially um, if you have a role you know you're, you're in a role and i go and say to someone i need help you know um i'm grieving and then you're looked at okay she she can't handle this or he can't handle that which is untrue if i'm getting the support because you know that i need and that if it needs that treatment that i need I can handle it. I'm being taught the coping skills to re- respond appropriately. So, yeah. yeah definitely. Definitely. I, I was, I liked everything you said and I see how, how the connection is there mm-hmm. uh, and reflecting on myself and the community and the environment I grew up in. That is, that is a major issue. Um, yes. You know, so I really, I really appreciate your feedback on that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. What challenges or barriers to substance use recovery do you see in communities of color? And mm-hmm. what do you what do you think contributes to those barriers? So what are some of those barriers or, or challenges? I feel the biggest one is fear. Mm-hmm. Um, lack of viable resources in our community. And I hate to sound like that broken record, but the stigma and lack of education, um, policies issues. Big institutes develop substations in our community, however, do not educate themselves on how to service our community, which result in poor services. Um, Smaller, more dedicated community-based clinics cannot open and provide services because HMOs um, only allow so many treatment clinics per zip code. And ironically, the most devastating zip code in Milwaukee County, which happens to be 53206, is reported to have too many treatment clinics in that area. Um, And that's because we have a lot of substations, a lot of bigger clinics that say, oh, we're working out of this school or we're working here and we're working there, but they're not servicing our community. And so we're missing out a lot of people that can help. Um, I also feel uh, a provider's lack of awareness of cultural issues. Providers are expected to observe behaviors as well as identify complaints or symptoms that are associated with mental health distress um, or substance abuse as a means of providing behavioral health services. This process needs to be grounded within the cultural content of the client. Um, Biases and the inability to speak to the client and speak their language. The client's mistrust of the treatment process um, because they've been bounced around and not 
treated properly. Stigma against people with mental health and substance use disorders and the cost of care. Um, there appears to be biases and diagnoses and assessments of treat, um, and treatment of people of color. This compounds the challenges um, and challenges people with mental illness and substance abuse um, issues. And we encounter that we encounter in, in obtaining the needed medical services. They separate medical and, and mental health services when in turn, I, I believe they go hand in hand because if I'm not taking care of myself mentally, I'm not aware to take care of myself physically. So then that's going to deteriorate as well. So then I, um, the barriers of access to care are compounded by the lack of enforcement of policies that are designed to close the gaps to care. Okay, and again, lastly, the, the stigma, discrimination, disproportionately delay the receipt of needed behavior services. We, and I say we, are less likely than whites to use behavior health services. And when we do, we receive a poor quality of care. Simply put, too many care providers in position that do not actually care and they are causing harm. And that was super deep. And uh, <clears throat> I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, wow. You know, I'm almost speechless. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, seriously. Like you hit the nail on the head. You, you gave me some chills. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I, I again, I don't want to monopolize the conversation. I don't want to get too deep and I don't want to get off, off topic. Right. But there, there, you know, if you look around, <clears throat> there are certain, certain, there are particular questions that are asked by healthcare providers and they're not asked for no reason. So right. the way you, your treatment happens is based uh, hugely on your race or ethnicity. And exactly. this is not, it's not something I'm just saying, but you know, if you do the research, you'll get the answers. Uh, yeah. And it does have a, a, you know, a devastating effect on how receive, uh, how, how treatment is received. Uh, again, the cultural competence, oh my God, that is such an issue nowadays. Yes. Uh, you know, and people don't fail to realize that it really is an issue. You can't, you know, you can't speak of a person's or help a person with their experience if you haven't experienced what they've experienced. You can't, it's like, you know, you have to be uh, in that person's shoes almost literally when it comes right. to cultural competence. Uh, and that's that's a huge barrier to successful treatment. Right. Or at least have the willingness to learn it. Yeah. And that's yeah. where we, we I see a lot of lack at. I don't I, they don't people don't have the willingness to learn it. And which means they just technically look at a book, which that's now how a lot of us can be treated from that book, because the book isn't designed to treat us. Yeah. Yeah, and then that stigma plays a part. Yes, with that lack of cultural competence. Yes. Awesome. Um, so, you kind of answer the next question, but maybe mm -hmm. you can speak on it a little bit more. And it, the question is, what resources and support do you see lacking in communities of color regarding substance use disorder and recovery? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do have it's the the lack of um, culturally competent competent caregivers. 
um, the understanding of addiction and treatment resources. I believe we need more call-in crisis lines designed around us. Mm-hmm. I, um, I remember years ago, I have an aunt. And this was so long ago prior to me getting into this uh, field. And she struggled with both mental health and um, substance abuse. And this is when around the time the 211 line first opened. And they connected her with a peer that, you know, and I stayed on the line long enough to make sure she got connected. I didn't realize, you know, she was really utilizing me a lot. I was way, way younger, um, but that I, I felt that was just enormous when I look back at that. And it was somebody that she totally related to that, you know, could really help her, um, sounded like her and everything. And I thought that was just the most awesomest thing that could be in place, I think. Um, I think... Um, we have um, so the, the the providers that understand the culture overall and the unwilling to learn the culture, as I said before, I think what else um, is lacking is the lack of government. When I say government, it boils down right down to my aldermen. You know, their lack of input to ensure resources are put in place. I think also schools play a big part. Um, especially now, um, we're seeing more and more and more because you figure our kids were shut in for almost two years. So that limited their ability to grow. But I think the school's unwillingness to implement education and support for mental health and substance abuse. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. You're very passionate. I like that. I, like <laughs> that. I am. Yeah. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, what have you seen as con- as contributing factors to limited recovery so- resources, programs, and outreach initiatives? And again, it kind of summed it all up, but maybe you can speak yeah. a little bit more. On that. I think there's outdated and or limited access. Um addressing how school communities can enhance existing drug and alcohol uh, prevention efforts along with mental health. I think um, the lack of efforts to utilize a well-informed, trauma-sensitive, and holistic approach starting in the schools as it relates to mental health and preventing drug and alcohol abuse later. Um, Specific strategies on meaningful outreach, engagement, and sustain partnerships with survivors of drug. And I use the word survivors loosely, um, but with people who have overcome and are managing and coping and develop skills to deal with their drug, alcohol, um, abuse issues, and mental health issues. Um, and they develop the skills to, to do what they need to do. And then I feel the government not enforcing policies that are already in place. I, I During this time, like I said, and my son, and, and not to sound too outdated, but it was, this was, I'm speaking maybe 16, 17 years, no, actually 20 years ago. And I'm running into the same issues. And I learned, that's why I learned about advocacies and 
advocates that stand up for you. And to, and I didn't realize that there are actually things put in place to avoid this, but no one enforces it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, a lot of good policies there and nobody's utilizing them. Yes. Yeah, that's that, you know, you can sound like a broken record with that one. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, the, the change is possible, but, um, you know, nothing happens overnight. But at the same time, um, the, the way these initiatives have been put in place, um, we should see more growth. We should right. see more outreach. We should see more education. Um, definitely in the schools, you know, at, at my age, it's hard for me to fathom that kids, you know, in the elementary schools are using like serious, not just like marijuana, but like serious drugs. Yes. And that's, yes. that's, that's really bewildering to me. You know, back in my days, that there was not even a mention of anything like that in eighth grade. Right. Know, and it's just, it's just, you know, the overdose races are rates are increasing and the, the age of these, you know, individuals using, you know, illicit substances and alcohol is, is they're getting younger and younger. And exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. That, that's definitely something that's needed in the school. That, that social setting is very, um, you know, there's a lot of peer pressure. So yeah, I, I yeah. respect everything you say and the views you have. Okay. Um, next question. Um, can you speak a little bit about Miss about trust? Mm-hmm. Um, how much does trust come into play with engaging clients from BIPOC communities in treatment and recovery? And you you, you touched on it a little bit, which is mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I also agree with and I viewed as, you know, um, effective communication, not just knowing how to speak, but knowing uh, how to speak to a, per- a person in a particular situation. Like, how can you, how can I relate to this person? Right. It's already hard enough to relate to people, but uh, it's more so in in these, in these types of situations. So I'd like you to speak on that a little bit. Right. So, yeah. Um, I actually asked this question to uh, a client that I'm currently working with actually, because I I knew what I wanted to say. Um, um, But I wanted to know, like, was I kind of on the right track? Cause sometimes when you're, not actually in that in that role. I'm not a client, but you know, and, and so I feel, you know, I have trust. I don't, you know, but so what I say, I, I believe trust plays a huge role in engaging clients in their treatment and recovery. You must build trust, and then they will have a new sense of seriousness seriousness added into their recovery. Most people that I've worked with want someone that is serious and trustworthy and hold them accountable. Um, They want someone that just won't tell them that drugs are bad or that you just need to get help with your mental health or just that book stuff. And that that was what the client said. I don't want to hear book stuff. Um, They want someone that they feel will provide opportunities and education to them. Um, the clients I've worked with appear to want someone that won't won't turn their back when they mess up, but instead hold them accountable, continue to educate them and continue to guide them. Because so many of people, so many of us that have these issues have received poor care, been stigmatized and dismissed. They lack trust. It is important to gain their trust in order for them to believe they can make a change and that people do care. Lastly, and the most important part, 
of building trust is being compassionate and having empathy, not sympathy. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Um, that stigma mm -hmm. works both ways. So, yeah. for example, if I go see a clinician and, you know, after that session, I feel just so disconnected, like I wasn't helped. I don't want to go see the next clinician. Exactly. Because, because that label of being a clinician, like they're all the same way. They learn right. the same thing. I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not getting any help. Uh, that That's a devastating part devastating effect that that it has on people seeking treatment like we spoke of before trust is so huge I, i'm more of a person and i'm not going to keep talking too long mm -hmm. but i'm more of a person i'm just going to tell you how it is i'm going to be straightforward with you right. open down the earth i'm going to be myself you know i'm not going to try to speak to you in a way where i'm not welcoming to you so. right and that's that's what else that i i like what you just said you go and you have this bad and so the stigma now with me being a therapist is on me. You're bad. You're a therapist or you're a counselor. So um, I'll say 80% of the time, maybe higher, I won't um, I won't go in the room where my licenses are hung up at. I don't tell them like that professional background because in all reality, um, my professional background was shaped because of barriers that I had to overcome in order to be of a good service per what the state was saying and things like that. That doesn't, you know, the things I learned in school and the book doesn't help me a lot in the communities that I work in. So I, I kind of start off with an informal approach. I don't like, I don't say this, Hey, I'm, Deslin and I have a master's degree in this and that and I hold this license or that license. I just come in and um I'm Desi. Um uh, so what well, well, you know and very down to earth. I don't I don't try look, we're in reality. Um we can't keep going like this. You know, I don't once they find out if they start off finding out what my credentials are, there's a big uh hurdle I have to jump over because of what they've been through and the stigma they have on me as a helping professional. When yeah. I start off just being me and going in how I go in and, and let's, I want to meet you where you're at, the space you're at, and we're both going to grow together. Um, and then they find out, they're like, what? I didn't know you had, you know, but right. my, my rapport is there already. Yeah. So, yeah. That is, that's, that, I, I think that's personally, I think that's a perfect approach. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, next question. What advice do you have about rapport to support trust? What, <laughs> oh, I, well, I got, I you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, rapport and trust, I think, are something that are earned. You're not entitled to. And I think so many professionals get that twisted. But I, I feel you must be genuine, compassionate, and open when you are working with um, individuals. Yeah. And when I say open, I mean open to learn them, not yeah. just put them in a box because everybody, you know, story is different. What makes them tick is different. So the openness to learn them and to learn from them and, yeah. and you know, being able to say, well, I don't understand Um we might have to seek help from somebody else to get through this, but let's see what we can do. 
you know, just being just genuine and that compassionate piece. I love that word genuine being your authentic self. Um, yes. You have to go into it that way. I believe, you know, yes. um, cause the trust won't be there. Right. You know, like you're, that's creates that stigma. You, you're being right. someone you're not, and you're trying to help someone who needs help. And I don't think that that individual will feel like they're going to be helped if you're not being who you are. Right. I, I remember, you know, with Garden Homes, we partner and we have a garden. And I remember we had um, we had an earn and learn program in the summer. So our our kids are, are we're kids of color. So they come in. But we have, you know, intern students that are coming from UWM. They're not of color. So they ask, you know, what I don't understand. I said, well, tell them you don't understand. Be able to learn from them. And I think that was like the best program we had. But that was the first time one of the um, students asked, like, I don't I don't know what to do. It's like, you know, and the, you know, the kids, people, period, since that. I said, but if you just tell them you don't know, you're not you tell them you've never been around a little black boy before. You don't understand their language. They will start teaching you and you empower them now. And that was like the best um, program we for the summer. And, and they were like so thankful and it, they looked at it differently. So I know that genuineness works. Yeah, 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 definitely. Get some different perspectives and build on that. Yes. Good stuff. Very good stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, in what ways have you seen the recovery community collaborate to strengthen engagement? I, I've, what I've experienced is that I, I, they promote a cultural and language of hope and optimism. Um, they support personal recovery, organizational commitment, and also in the workforce development when they um, in that recovery community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in turn, that can be a great thing, if, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I love those connections. I love making those connections and those collaborations myself. It, it does strengthen, strengthen the engagement. Right. Um, okay. What do you think best facilitates engagement in recovery and diverse communities? What is it? Um, I believe um, providing appropriate and correct information and incentives to encourage minority households to broaden their horizons and expand the provided resources. They're not at our fingertips as they are in other communities. I feel it's important to see us in, in roles, you know, when I, you know, be able to see other people of color, me, um, you, in roles that then I can start thinking, okay, I can do it a little better. Um, I am one that fully supports peer-to-peer -peer support um, services in all aspects. I wish it would become more recognized. I know that it is getting there. I know that even SAMHSA everywhere is seeing that is promoting healthier um, recovery um, pieces. And I think it would just, I, I just hope that it goes to where it's more recognized and more utilized in clinics everywhere. Um, so I can see me um, and I, you know, in that role. And it's, it's unfortunate 
And I used to be one that tr tried so hard not to separate or bring um, the color issue into something. But in reality, I can't because I have been one that has, you know, that stigma. I don't want to go see that person. How are they going to know what I'm talking about? And then when I do give them a chance, they're not willing to listen to me at all. So I, I really can relate to when they see someone that's not them. And it's just it's not that they just don't want to. It's just the bad experiences that they've had two steps away from being traumatized. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, unfortunately, um, I, I try to do the same thing, not let color be a factor in any initiatives that, you know, trying to be set forth, but you, you can't, you, you can't avoid that. It's, it, it's really right. there and it needs right. to be addressed. And right. That's why, that's why we're doing this podcast and many more. So yeah, that's very, very good information. Um, all right. Uh, on August 12th of last year, 2021, uh, Wisconsin Voices for Recovery installed an Aloxone box at Young's Bar in Milwaukee, uh, where, where you were you were a part of that. Uh, yes. What are your thoughts about increasing access to nasal naloxone across the community? Uh, and what positive effect do you think that it will have on the community at large? Um, my thoughts are huge on increasing it across our community. Um, my community suffers from the highest rate of overdoses in Wisconsin, and we have limited access to um, naloxicon across that board. So I'm all in favor for installing in high-risk areas and things like that. One of the positive effects, I do feel that it will start destigmatizing um that perspective about drug abuse and drug addiction and i think it, it will um have a begin a sense of healing for the community because then we'll have less deaths um and i think you know people will see okay i was able to access that there and these people look you know they didn't look at me crazy. You know, I, I'm running in to help my friend because now they're overdosing, but I have this right here. That may be a starting point at that gas station, even at fire stations, because I i don't know factually, but I've heard in other communities of non-color, um, they have them at local gas stations, local um, high-risk um, hotels and things of that nature. Well, that hotel clerk could be a starting point. I could go back in and I think it would be um, extremely positive and beginning to destigmatize and create a sense of healing. So I totally support it. I'm on board with wherever I'm looking for more places and I'm still soliciting support. I know um, I work closely like with um, different people that supported me in the Office of Violence Prevention and um, I just got a call um, not too long ago. Like, where are you at with installing them? What you know? What? How can we support? And um, I think just giving more education about those um, because I did get a lot of questions. I had to bounce back to you guys because I'm like, well, I don't really know. I just know this helps. I don't know what else right. you know. Yeah. So um, that's where I'm at with it, and I I think it will. It's a a step towards destigmatizing. Um, substance um, 
abuse. Yeah. 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 Thank you. We're, we're, and we are, you know, there anytime you need us to answer right. any questions, definitely reach out to anyone on the team. Um, you know, I have, I imagine, <clears throat> that, you know, I have that same outlook as you that will uh, increase the destigmatizing de mm -hmm. um, thoughts. Because um, mm -hmm. for you to say, yeah, man, you know, this person was, was overdosing and I saved their life. Like mm -hmm. that's, you know, that, that is a, a feat and how that work is spread and that information can spread. Like, well, how'd you right. do it? Where'd you get and it, it from? It, it may not be a friend. It may just be someone passing by, but then yeah. now that's going to increase their awareness to want to know, I just saved their life. How did I just save their life? What did I just do? So even that one more person on board of knowing that I could save a life and then they can start spreading the word about education. They're, they're going to want to know what's going on. So I, that's where I think it starts. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There, there's a starting point and, um, you know, depending on what, what the issues are, especially with the stigma, probably being mm -hmm. number one, um, you know, there, there's that starting point of how word travels, how information travel, how the word of help travels. So yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Yep. Okay, I would like to ask you finally, is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't discussed yet today? Well, I, <laughs> I have something else to say, but I think we've discussed it. But I just want to just emphasize the increased urgency need to end the stigma on mental health and addiction. Um, I want you know, would really encourage community involvement and participation in this healing process. Um uh, more resources should be put into our community organizations who have a credible relationship within the neighborhood and not into the big hospitals and agencies that don't have a connection to our community at all. And our community overall distrust them. Um, put more resources in the peer, sorry, peer to peer type certifications so people can have more relatable supports in the professional setting. Um, on the front end, you know, evidence suggests that there is a tendency for pro providers to mix diagnoses. Um, our children are more likely than um, non-colored children, white children, to be diagnosed with a conduct disorder based on stereotypical assessments that our children are more likely to be violent and thus require placements in more restrictive settings. This compounds um, this is compounded by the lack of credible mental health providers. Uh, and then that means our children are at a higher risk to abuse illegal substance. Um, I feel more training programs in terms of both continuing education and professional training that address the problems of providers' implicit biases that enforce the um, federal mandates tied to the culturally and log logistical approach services, you know, um, ensuring that behavior health care coverage is treated in the same manner as health care coverage. Um, I, I feel that we also need to include trainings, um, importance of understanding that the expression of mental health distress may be culturally bound. In some cases, we may misrepresent our, when I say we, people of color, may misrepresent our expression of mental health distress. 
based on what we've been taught and the, the stigma that is related to it. Rather than we say we're anxious or depressed, we, we've been trained basically to say, oh, our stomach hurts, my head hurts. So um, seeing we have um, those issues, the providers need to be aware of this. Um, there's evidence of disparities in diagnosis, the progression and treatment uh, of mental health and substance abuse in our communities. Mental health symptoms in us may go unrecognized, untreated, or misdiagnosed and treated inappropriately. Uh, or, and we, people of color, are overdiagnosed with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. And the big one that I really hate to hear, ADHD in our children. And when in reality, we may just be simply overwhelmed or anxious due to the current situations, especially now with COVID and everything. And as I said before, how we respond or react to a trauma, a, a, a distressing event is all related on how I'm trained to cope. And so just a quick story, um, I now, because with my work with Mental Health America, I am afforded the opportunity to work in some of the MPS schools. And I was working with a student, a young black boy that is about eight or nine years old. And, you know, you say, how are you doing? And he says, good. So for me, you know, good is not a feeling and everybody's good looks different. So I ask everybody that I work with, no matter the age, what does your good look like? This young man said to me, nobody got shot this week that I heard about. So of course, and, and so leading more, he's not sleeping well. He's afraid to go to sleep. So of course he's going to act out. I'm an adult, and if I don't get a, enough sleep, I'm going to be upset and angry. So now we're misdiagnosed. When it's the current situation, we're not digging deep enough to see what's going on with the child or the adult to treat appropriately what it is instead of diagnosing them. And I, I think it goes back to the stigma related to it and care providers in place that are not willing to understand the culture or the community they're working in because I'm a person of color, but my culture may differ from yours. However, what my community environment entails is going to um, have me respond or react to certain situations. So I, that's where I would like to end it at. You know, I, I could talk to you all <laughs> and I and I can share all day because I will say I am extremely passionate and uh, my personal experiences drive me because I was not treated well. Um, and I, I um, sat in a room when my son first started having issues. I was the only black family sitting in this room. I did at the time work for um, Milwaukee County. So my health insurance was semi good. But I'm sitting in here with families from suburbs that I've never heard of. And one of the kids sitting in there had got caught with an eight ball of cocaine in their locker. And the 
only thing that happened to them was that they had to come to this treatment. They didn't get expelled from school. Nothing, nothing else happened. But my son, who was caught with um, a, a half of a blunt of a not that is good. I'm not con condoning it whatsoever. But he was expelled. Um, not looked at what was going on with him mentally, never asked, you know, what's, you know, what was the root cause, just expelled, put out of school. Now he has this on him. And I just started looking like, wait a minute, why did they do this to my kid and not give him a chance? But you got a chance. So that kind of started opening my eyes. And I, and I, I will say this too. Um, I give big shout outs to Senator Herb Cole at the time. I'm not trying to age myself. And Gwen Moore, and at the time was my alderman, Michael McGee Jr., mm -hmm. who extremely helped me, which where I know my government is able to help in these situations, but it's so now detached. And I don't know why, but they helped me learn about advocacies from my, from my insurance on down to the treatment I was getting on Watertown Plank Road. And I did not like it. So I, I, I vowed to be in a place where I can help others. And a lot of doctors, a lot of nurse practitioners hate to see me coming because I want to know why are you giving them this drug? I want to know what are you doing to educate them? I educate my clients. You are not, what is bipolar? They need to tell you what that is. You have a right to know what they're telling you you are. Do you understand what that is? Do you understand what depression is? Do you understand what this is? Um, because usually when you educate, you empower. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm at with it. Yeah, and that empowerment can, you know, give you the information to make informed decisions. Yes. You, know, you need that education. Exactly. Like I, like I said, you know, I, I could talk, I could listen to you all day. Um, <laughs> really, and like you know, we'll start at 7 a.m. And before you know it, it's midnight. We're still talking. Uh, right. Everything you're saying is phenomenal. The the, the views and, and what you've gone through, your experiences, mm -hmm. the way you advocate, the way you educate, it's all phenomenal to me. I really Thank appreciate you. it. And this podcast couldn't have came at a, be at a better time than Black History Month. Yes. Um, you know, and I'm hoping this reach, reaches the masses to, to keep everybody informed on yes. issues that, that you know, are are in our communities and abroad. Uh, yeah, very very powerful information, uh, and it's very thought provoking what you said. And I appreciate you being here. I appreciate. I you. appreciate being here. Oh, you're, you're great. You're phenomenal. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. The whole team of Wisconsin Voices for Recovery uh, appreciates your time and your your input. Thank um, you. So we're running this podcast today with the wonderful Desna Smith, uh, clinical director at Gateway for Change LLC, co-executive director for Uniting Garden Homes, and uh, her involvement with Mental Health America. Uh, we'd like to thank you, and we appreciate your time. All right, thank you. All right, no doubt, thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. Okay, bye-bye.